Western United, they'll be known as, and they'll play in green and black. Now I'm stuffed. Um... Welcome to Well Out West's latest edition of Off The Pitch. Scott, Kelsey and I are joined by one of Australia's most influential people in football. Our guest has an amazing career from being CEO of the Carlton Football Club in the old NSL to forming Tribal Sports Group, an international football talent agency. Welcome the one, the only, Loose Sticker. Lou, what's your story and how does it continue to inspire you? What's my story? I suppose in this new role, um, one thing that I always tell people that don't know me is that I'm, I'm just a football fan. Mm. So I've been very fortunate in my football career is, is, is that uh, it started 20, 25 years ago with Carlton Soccer Club in the old NSL. And ever since then, it's just been one long journey of football. It's... Uh, it's certainly uh, been very rewarding um, from a, a satisfaction point of view. It's taken me on this incredible ride around the world, met, met so many different people, uh, been to so many fantastic places, and it lives on today. And I'm, ver I'm very, very excited about uh, our new venture. I think that this is, this is the big kahuna, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, Western United Football Club, I think, is going to change uh, the game in this country, and I'm really humbled to be a part of it. So, how did the Carlton Football Club, AFL, and football venture happen, and what was your time like as CEO? It started off in 1993. Um, I'm I'm a pretty passionate Carlton Football Club fan, and. I'd started off there as a young kid behind the goals and worked my way into the social club and then ultimately into the Carlton Coterie. And one day, at the, actually the first time I went into the, this particular Carlton Coterie, it cost a lot of money back in 93. And the major benefit was that it allowed me to go into the change rooms before, during and after the game. And I'm in the change rooms after uh, a Carlton game and I'm looking at the people inside the change rooms. And there were many faces from many different nationalities. And it sort of struck me that, that a lot of those people in that room may have been originally soccer fans. And it amazed me how there were people there of Italian descent, like myself, people of Jewish descent, Greek, Lebanese, and yet they were all supporting Aussie rules. At the same time that I was passionate Carlton Football Club fan, I was also vice president of Brunswick Zebras, uh, the, the, the Italian soccer club. And I could see the Italian soccer club in, in Australia, you know, run by Italo-Australians, but it was of Italian descent, and I could see 
that young people were dropping off, that the crowds were diminishing, that the mentality of people running clubs um, at that time was stark, starkly different. And yet, on this, I'd go to the, I, as a kid, I grew up going to watch Carlton play at Princess Park at two o'clock on a Saturday afternoon. And at three o'clock on Sunday, I'd go and watch Brunswick play at Olympic Park. So that was my weekend. Aussie rules and soccer lived hand in hand. I, as a kid, I grew up to be a member and then a coterie member at Carlton. And at uh, Brunswick, I ended up being vice president after having started as a junior and then as a fan and worked my way through. And one day the penny dropped. The day that I saw those people in the Aussie Rules Club that were of ethnic extraction who would have traditionally been soccer people, they'd uh, basically uh, dropped soccer as their chosen sport and had progressed to Aussie Rules. And it became really clear to me that the reason was is because many ethnic communities, like my parents emigrated to Australia in the 50s. After 10, 15, 20 years, they've had kids. Their kids are Australian. They've become Australian citizens. They've assimilated into society really well. So they didn't need to go to an Italian soccer club to get their fix. If people understand the history of immigration, when my dad came out here as a 16-year-old in 1952, they worked five days a week. They didn't speak English. And Saturday afternoons is when Brunswick would play at Olympic Park. In those days, it was just called uh, Juventus Melbourne. And the Italians would go there more, not necessarily to follow the team. It was more as a gathering place for people of one nationality to see each other before the weekend finished. And then they would go back to their mundane jobs where they didn't see anybody. And the only time they saw each other was the soccer. So cut a long story short, ethnic communities that have been here a long time have assimilated. They don't need it. They didn't need to go to an ethnic, uh, a, a monocultural club like an Italian club for Italians or a Greek club for Greeks. I saw it clear as day. So I actually wrote to Ian Collins, who was the CEO of the Carlton Football Club in 1993. This is when, unfortunately, my Carlton Football Club got smashed by Essendon in the grand final in 93. And I wrote this letter. And basically what the letter said was exactly what I've just explained to you now. I look at your fans, I look at the stadium, I look at the colours, I look at the dressing rooms, and it's like being at Celtic Park or being at Anfield, a club of history, a club with many passionate fans. Why couldn't we run a Carlton soccer club so people that follow your football club could follow the soccer in the off-season? About four weeks later, I get a letter back from the Carlton Football Club saying, it's a fantastic idea. We've registered the name. We'd love you to come in and talk to us. From 93, it took three years for us to wait till the right time. Uh, they appointed me CEO. We, um, our inaugural game was in October 1997 against Perth Glory. David Savinsky, who passed away a month or so ago, was our first goal scorer. Talk about remembering... Uh, a, a part of history. Uh, I want to give credit to David because obviously, as you know, he's just passed away and so many people uh, respect uh, David Savinsky. He was one of the legends of 
of Melbourne Knights, Wollongong Wolves, and for three years at Carlton Soccer Club. So the Carlton Football Club relationship with the soccer club was fantastic, but they had some internal issues. It was at the end of John Elliott's reign as president, and at a certain point in time, the football club said, look, Lou, if we get the chance to sell it, help us sell the club. Two years into that relationship, um, the club was sold to a group of privateers who ended up moving it to Olympic Park. I stayed uh, for a little bit longer, but I didn't get along with the new owners, so begrudgingly I left. And then 12, 18 months later, they were basically went into administration. If I can say one thing, that the Carlton Soccer Club, I believe, was 10, 15 years ahead of its time. When we joined the NSL, it was very much in its death throes. It was a competition that had no TV uh, exposure. People might remember Channel 7 had bought the rights and then didn't show it. Yeah, they shelved it. They shelved it, yeah, they warehoused it. So the, the, we came in with great ideas. I think we got a lot of it right. I'm really proud that we discovered players like Marco Bresciano, Vince Grella, <coughs> uh, Simon Colosimo, Andy Vlahos, Archie Thompson, Josh Kennedy. And, you know, it, it take, takes, I take a lot of pride from that. Um, a lot of people say that the victory was modelled out of uh, what Carlton was meant to be. Uh, whether that's true or not is really irrelevant. The fact is, is that the club finished... 12 months later, the the the, the league uh, was closed down and the A-League kicked off in 2005. So that's my that's my connection with Carlton. So Tribal Sports Group has organised some big tours involving some elite teams around the world to Australia. Can you talk a bit about what's involved in bringing these teams to Australia? Okay. To Australia? Okay. Well, I might just start by saying that uh, after I left Carlton... Um, I was sitting around looking at what I was going to do next in my career. And I remember a couple of the Carlton players rang me up, said, Lou, um, can you help us with our contracts? So that actually was the reason I became a FIFA player agent in 2000. Literally months after I left Carlton, I started my own business as a, as a FIFA player agent. In 2007, I then got my FIFA match agent's licence which enabled me to start arranging uh, international games. And in fact, um, I did a couple of small ones. And then the one that sort of put me on the map was uh, arranging LA Galaxy with David Beckham uh, to come out to Sydney in 2007. And then we played in Wellington as well on the same tour. And that was the first real big event that I was involved with. And it's been one heck of a ride since. Was it a big learning curve with the um, the Beckham tour, or no? The, the 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 LA Galaxy tour was actually really interesting because within days that he'd signed at LA Galaxy, I quickly got onto the onto the phone and found out who the president was, and it was um, Alexi Lalas, the the former American. Um, Team USA player, the defender with orange hair, Greek background, got onto him, signed up an exclusive to bring him out to Asia. When we brought LA Galaxy out, if you can think of a, a football club that was predominantly an, an American club that had zero international idea, they had the biggest superstar land in their roster. 
And so coming on tour for them was like, wow, this is unbelievable. They'd never experienced anything <laughs> like it. It's 85,000 people at, um, at ANZ Stadium and, you know, four days in Wellington, which was like seriously the biggest party I've ever experienced in my life. And it was all, it was all because of the hype around David Beckham. So it was a it was a massive learning curve, but I would say that that was probably the easiest um, tour I've ever been involved with. What's the hardest? Or can't I, you say I can understand? No, no, I brought, <laughs> I, no I, one that cost me a lot of money because I I made a real blue. I brought Celtic out in um, oh, I can't remember now. Two thousand and nine, I think it was. Originally, I brought them out to Brisbane one year, and they played against the Raw. They got 31,000 people. It was fantastic. Great atmosphere. Beautiful day. Uh, it was just sensational. A year later, I thought I'd bring them back again. And, and what I did is instead of playing in one city, I decided to take them to Perth, Sydney and Melbourne. And what I actually did was, was instead of the fans coming to me, I took them to the fans. And so I, I split my revenue in three and multiplied my expenses by three, so so it was a it was a, an interesting exercise. I learnt very very quickly. Um, so it's not that easy to be a promoter. Put your skin in the game, and uh, you can win some, but and and you can do well, and you, you can certainly lose and lose heavily. <laughs> Tribal sports have been responsible for a number of notable figures coming to the A League. What was your favourite? Well, people are probably going to say Alessandro Del Piero um, for the obvious connection, but to be completely frank, I think what Dwight York did in year one of the A-League, I was very, very close, closely involved with Sydney FC. The chairman at the time, a very good friend of mine, Walter Bugno, he uh, asked me to help build the team, so I went on this uh, massive recruitment drive. Uh, I'm not sure if I've told him any people, but... I interviewed people like Ari Hahn from uh, from Holland to be the head coach, uh, Paolo Di Canio, Harry Redknapp, um, Roy Hodgson, and a few other notable people that escaped me at the moment before we settled on Pierre Barsky. So the recruitment drive to get the head coach was uh, incredible. It was like ten cities in ten days, but it was it was just amazing to be able to meet these legends of the game um, and, and some of them sort of liked, looked at me as if to say, Australia, no, you know, can't be, you, you, this guy's having a lend. But uh, we got Pierre Litvarsky and that was an incredible learning curve. So, but um, I think, I say Dwight York, why? Because Dwight York, legend of Aston Villa and Man United, had moved to Birmingham City, was on the bench, was sort of, According to people, at the tail end of his career, I think he'd made eight appearances in the season before we brought him to Sydney. So there was a lot of pressure. And from the minute he arrived, he just went into overdrive. It, the, the, the publicity that he brought to the A-League, to the crowds that he brought in year one, I think actually set a really solid foundation for the A-League. And, and the, the A-League has prospered from Dwight York's involvement. So Dwight's very special. The, the, the Dwight recruitment to Sydney FC is a very special time for me and I think for the game. You were present in the old NSL or old soccer days. What was your reaction like to the A-League? 
after my experience at Carlton Soccer Club, I had a coffee with a, a chap that had called me and said, Lou, I've just been invited to apply for a job at an A-League club. What do you think? And I said, ah, oh, no, mate. I, I actually, I, I honestly, hand on heart, I thought the game was on its deathbed. I, I didn't think that the A-League, this was before I was invited to be involved with Sydney FC, mind you. Um, I thought that it was going to, I was going to struggle. Within the first couple of rounds of the A-League, and if you look at Melbourne, even though I was involved with Sydney FC, I lived in Melbourne still, and to see the crowds flock to watch Melbourne victory, I shouldn't have been surprised. You know, I, I, I doubted it. And then when I saw it, I said to myself, Lou, really, you, you called this one wrong. This, the game's been crying out for the opportunity for people to follow the A-League, to follow a club, irrespective of what background you are. And so anyone to, anyone that went to watch victory in year one, year two, year three, and continued, you saw every nationality. Australians, people of European extraction, people of South American extraction, everyone banded together, or banded together to watch um, victory and to watch the A-League and similar experiences up in Sydney. So the A-League um, performed better than what I, I thought it was going to. You were tasked with setting up a football department and team in five months for the inaugural Sydney FC team in the A-League. Do you think there was a great preparation for the Western United 1920 season? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, uh, I've got to be... I've followed the same uh, template that I used for Sydney FC. I've followed it... Uh, for my role at uh, Western United, the, the the most important thing is is to have people that have got a vision for what they want the club to be. Recruiting the right people in all the key places who believe in that vision, and I've I've been privy to the reaction of big names from overseas when they've had a conversation with our head coach, Mark Rudin, and the comments that I get are that um, I really want to come out and play for this coach. I really want to come out and play for the club. So if everyone has a vision and it's united, then it's easy to sell to people to come along. And as I say, you know, I, I can't mention names at the moment. I might tell you off record, but... Um, the, the, some of the, I suppose, the, the, the success that we've had to bring players to a new club like us is that they welcome the opportunity to be something, be part of something new, where they can actually help build the fabric of what the club's going to look like. That's really appealing. And when you, when you speak... Um, the, the most recent recruit is Andrew Durante, as you know. And he's a guy that's had a, a huge career uh, at Wellington, played for the New Zealand national team. And what excited him about keeping his boots on for another season was that he could come and help build this new club. So so that that is it's an overriding theme, is, is that it's new, it's fresh, it has the opportunity to do something and stamp 
stamp a, a particular style to what we're trying to do. And having people in key positions like our chief executive, like our board of directors, like our football director, Steve Horvat, one of the founders of the club. And now we've got Mark Rudin, John Anastasiadis, John Hutchison, Frank Urich. Uh, I said to you, Massimo Madoc has now joined our uh, football staff. Real football people, all excited about the project. That, that for me, is, is the big learning. That's amazing. Um, how's the league changed since the um, Sydney campaign, setting that up? Okay, year one was interesting. It was eight teams. So there was, there was a freshness to it. Everyone would have been really excited for it too, I take yeah, it. Yeah, you know, barring my, my initial doubt about the A-League because of my bitterness post-NSL, it quickly dawned on me that um, there's a real appetite for this game. I suppose year one, because I was too heavily involved, the old saying is you can't see the forest for the trees. When it really dawned on me was year two. I was, I was, I was in the grandstand with my wife watching Melbourne Victory destroy Adelaide 5-0 or 5 or whatever it was. That was a classic. But I believe I, but, it was 6-0. Yeah, was it? Yeah. <laughs> Archie scored 5. That's right, that's right. Well, I, I turned around to my wife and I said, have you ever seen anything like this? Like, we were surrounded left, right, front and back with mums and dads and little kids and just by looking at them and listening to them, they weren't traditional soccer people. These were people that had got excited about being able to go and watch soccer in the way that Australians go and watch sport, which is everyone together, not based on religion, not based on ethnicity, not based on uh, financial uh, positioning, just to be able to go and watch a team altogether. That's when it really dawned on me that this, this game has really got a big future in Australia. Obviously, there are a few teams putting in bids for the new licences. What made you want to take on the Western United project? Okay, so so this 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 journey started about two and a half years ago. Steve Steve Horvat was Steve actually used to play for me when I was at Carlton, so that's how we got to, to know each other, and we kept in touch. And Steve kept on saying to me, "Come on, we we've got a." We've got to start a team. And I said, oh, you've got rocks in your head, boy. <laughs> Especially down in Geelong, mate. No, mate, I live on the other side of town. I'm not interested, Steve. And, you know, it started off as a bit of a, a bit of ribbing. And, and then we, we started to have some serious discussions. And then we, we made a pact that if we were going to do this, we'd only do it if it was the whole hog, meaning we've got to have our own stadium. Why? A-League clubs... Nine out of the 10 A-League clubs that exist today, over the course of their history, I would say most teams have lost money most years of their existence, probably barring Melbourne victory. I mean, Melbourne victory is very much the strongest link in a pretty weak chain. Let's, let's, let's pull no punches now. You take victory out of every, every KPI, TV ratings, match attendances, merchandise sales. You take victory out and it's it's pretty dismal reading. There, are, there, have, there have been moments where Brisbane Raw has had a fantastic two or three years and I think Sydney FC is pretty well close to Melbourne victory in terms of its success. However, financially, have lost a lot of money over the journey. And predominantly, if you understand the businesses of the A-League clubs, think of it this way. 
it's not a real business. They operate 13 out of 365 days of the year. They might be lucky to have 13 home games. So their business model operates 13 times a year. Most of those 13 days, they lose money. They don't fill the stadium sufficiently to cover the costs of running the club or running the match day. So if you actually look at the, the, the weakest part of every A-League a club's business is the stadium deals that they have. Victory survive and prosper because they get big crowds. So they tick the boxes, they pay their way. Victory's also been really good at running the business outside of match day. They run the victory in business four times a year. They run a lot of other coterie functions for their corporate network. They have a great community engagement. So victory is really unique, but the rest of the clubs lose a heck of a lot of money. So I said to Steve, I'm not interested in being part of a club for the privilege of losing money. So if we build our own stadium, let's park the cost of building the stadium for the time being. If a club owns its own stadium, they keep all the revenues from beer sales, from food sales, from car parking. All of a the sudden, they've got a good business where they're not paying rent. They own the stadium. Then the question comes into it, well, to build a stadium, that's a heck of a lot of money. Most stadiums in Australia lose money on their on their operations. Okay, most stadiums are built by government. So, without I can't I can't say at the moment because it's uh, commercial in confidence. But whatever our stadium costs, if government was building exactly the same stadium, it'd probably cost twice as much money. Why? Because government is government. They they have different ways of tendering it out. They have. Uh, um, they build things that a privateer might not be as exorbitant and cut some of the fat. So we're, we're going to build a stadium that we feel will be, for the fans of our club, will be a home. It will be a, a, a stadium that will be in the colours of our club. So as a fan, whether you live in Werribee or whether you live in Tarnit or whether you live on the surf coast or whether you live in Templestone, you're going to drive to your stadium. You're going to have that buzz of walking in the door in the colours of your club where there will be bars that um, you'll meet your friends and you'll build uh, a lifetime of, of fun. Very similar to what it was like for me as a fan of the Carlton Football Club growing up as a young man, teenager, then an adult, going to Princess Park, walking in. The whole thing was navy blue, uh, it was it was home. The multi-purpose stadiums that we now have around the country, they're great. They're modern. They've got a lot of great facilities, but they're not they're not the home of the, those clubs. Now the smart stadiums, the new stadiums like Optus Stadium in Perth, they've got a lot of lighting um, capabilities to change the look and feel of the stadium. So when when uh, the West Coast Eagles play at Optus Stadium, the colours of West Coast Eagles are permeated through the lighting system. When Frio Dockers play there, they can then customise it to but it's still not the same, you know. 
So, so we made a pact. If we were going to go down this track, we had to find a way of funding this club and the stadium to house the club. We, we, we then were joined by our current uh, chief executive, Morris Bezzetto. Morris is, is a really well-credentialed um, auditor at KPMG who's now left to, to take up the role of CEO, but Morris had been around uh, the corporate world for a long time, very switched on. Uh, and so through Morris, we started to look at the funding models for the stadium. Uh, we found parcels of land. We, we, we ended up on the one in Sayers Road in Tarnit, which is in the which was originally owned or still owned by the Wyndham City Council. And that's transferring over to us as we go through the, the stadium project. Um, so we're very fortunate to have a fantastic partner in Wyndham City Council. Uh, the person in particular that at Wyndham City Council is a lady called uh, uh, Kate Roffey. Kate, before taking on uh, Wyndham City Council, was the person that oversaw the redevelopment of Rod Laver Arena. So all those new developments uh, in the tennis precinct there, she, that was her baby. She oversaw that. So we happened to cross paths. Uh, the planets really aligned when we met Kate Roffey. So from Steve, then myself, then Morris, then Kate, and we continued to con add good people to the organisation. We've got a great investment group behind us. Uh, there's, there's, there's additional land beyond the stadium where we're going to build our training base, um, which will have a smaller 5,000-seat stadium, which will have four training pitches, an, an additional four training pitches, which will have our head office and hotel for players to be able to sleep there um, for up to 30 people, I think it is, 30 rooms. Then there's a commercial component and there's a residential component to it as well. And it's those other components that will ultimately help us fund the cost of building the stadium, which will ultimately mean that the football club will live in its own home, not paying rent. And one day, if and when the salary cap ever disappears, the club will be well positioned to compete domestically and internationally in the Asian sphere um, because it'll have resources behind it. So the strategy always has been not just to own an A-League club for the privilege of owning an A-League club. If we didn't go in with this vision, there's no way known that the FFA would have given us the licence. I'll make that really clear. The reason the FFA gave us the licence over the other 14 bids was is that the vision that we had for the, the stadium. And to be the first football club in the A-League that owns its own stadium, I think swayed the FFA significantly. How are the preparations at the club going and for the upcoming season? Well, the, the enormity of the project that we've undertaken, which when we use the word project, um, you know, I don't want to undermine from a public, a public perspective, we're building a football club, make no bones about it. But we're running a number of components uh, at the same time, like we're working feverishly with our designers and builders to make sure that we get the approval for the stadium to be built and so that we're there by season three. That is taking a lot of work. Um, 
and all the other associated components whose sole goal is to end up with a football club in its own privately owned football stadium and elite training centre which costs many, many millions of dollars. What we are today and what we will be in five years' time is complete is a completely different scenario. When we talk about the big Asian clubs, the Chinese clubs like Guangzhou Evergrande and all the J League clubs, the J League clubs are probably the best model to, to look at. What the Japanese clubs are today um, is where we want to be. What they were 30 years ago is very similar to where we are today, where they had the right ideas and they set about for a medium to long-term plan. All this stuff is going on in the background. The fans don't really care about that, let's be honest. The only thing that matters is the football club. And and I'll repeat my opening statement is I'm a football fan. So um, I, I think I've got a gauge on where the fans want to see us, and that is is to have a really competitive team to play a brand of football that will make people want to come to the stadium and in keeping with that you know choosing the right colors for our club that the fans have had a major input into we've just recently announced the designs which has had a fantastic reaction the players are now starting to move in from interstate and overseas our coach has only just returned in the last hour or so from a two-week stint overseas. His staff have been working behind the scenes. Training starts in the middle of July, but a heck of a lot of work is going on as we speak now. It's really exciting. I've got to be honest with you. From It's a lot of work, but it's really exciting. And But what really excites me is what the fans, looking at it through the lens of, of a fan, and that is... The colours, merchandise is not far away, memberships are not far away, training is not far away. So this dream, this talk about this Western United Football Club, people have 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 not seen it, haven't visualised it yet. Very, very soon they'll be visualising it, they'll be seeing it firsthand and that really excites me. So is everything progressing as planned? Good question. I would say... Again, looking at it through the lens of a fan, if I was a fan, I probably would have expected maybe to be a bit more advanced on on some areas. And that's fair enough. Even though I've been through this a number of times before, the detail that we're going into to ensure that when we do come out and give the fans the option to buy memberships and match day ticketing and merchandise and all the other things that, that that a fan wants to see, it's taken a lot of detail, a lot of time to ensure that we get it right. And some of this, I'll put my hand up, I'm always in a rush to get things done. And then there are others, and that's the beauty about being a, a group, is, is that there are other individuals that uh, will slow things down to ensure that we get it right. So me personally, I'd like to be a lot more advanced I think the fans would like us to be a bit more advanced. Um, but I think that in a very short amount of time, when the fans can buy our shirt, 
when they can see our team train. And then ultimately, when we start rolling out a 10-game series of practice games before kick-off in October 2019, and we roll out some social activities. Uh, we've got people actually now out in the community. Steve Orvat's running, uh, and another chap called Robert Palmerichotti are running a, a really intense uh, community engagement program out in the West at the moment with schools and clubs. And as we get through more of that, as fans can start buying uh, stickers to put on the back of their car and, you know, all the things that fans want to do to be a part of a football club, it's going to happen in the next four, six, eight weeks. So if we are a little bit behind, I think we'll, we'll, we'll catch up as we get closer to the season. Following on from that, has there been anything particularly challenging in the preparations? Mm, that's a good point. Again, yeah, there, there has. I, I think the, you know, things like, again, running a process to ensure that we hook up with the right ticketing partner is really important. Making sure that the pricing of the ticketing is really is really affordable. You know, we've paid a lot of attention to, again, looking at us from a new fan's point of view. Why are they going to hook up with us? Why are they going to drive from Werribee to, uh, to Cadinia Park? Or why are they going to drive from the surf coast up to Tarnit when the stadium's ready? It's got to be affordable. They've got to be able to have a good time at the stadium. And that means having a, a good quality selection of food. The, the younger kids have to be uh, kept uh, interested. So if there's little kids there, you know, having some pre-match uh, engagement opportunities, uh, kicking the ball around in a castle, those sorts of things. There's, I suppose what I'm getting at is there's so many layers of detail to end up with the end product, if that makes sense. Um, so, so there's a lot of work that is going on. We're actually appointing a lot of people to the organisation at the moment. In the last couple of weeks, we've we've now appointed uh, and some pretty uh, interesting executives from other sports and other clubs around the country that have been engaged to run our merchandise program, our membership program, uh, community engagement. And there's a lot more appointments that will be rolled out in the next four to six weeks. So we're growing by the day. I mean, we're, we're employing doctors, we're employing physios, we're employing masseurs. Uh, kid uh, men, uh, you know, we're, we're getting, you know, as I said, players coming in, helping them find apartments, starting from scratch. You know, once you once you're operational, this time next year it'll be a lot easier because we've got 23 players. If two or three leave, or um, and we have to replace them, it's only two or three that you have to help find a home yeah. or find a car. So, it, so at the moment we're doing a lot of house hunting. You know, there are, there are people in the club helping driving people, players around and their girlfriends and wives and kids, helping them find a house, you know. So there's a lot of schools, employment, a lot, lot of things, a lot of things. Is there just be like a Western United street or something? Or? <laughs> a whole suburb, I think, after this, yeah. Um, so internally, does the club have any like particular targets they're hoping to meet in the first season, e.g. crowd numbers, members, anything like that? I'm not going to talk. There are, and I'll, I'll leave that for people whose um, areas of expertise, I, I'm focusing on the team. So uh, one of the things that I, I, I'd like us to be super competitive, 
I believe, with the squad that we've put together, keeping in mind that we've still got three to four to come in, including th- three foreigners. Um, I hope that they will be the cherry on the cake. I, I work closely with Mark, and I know Mark's approach uh, to what he wants to achieve, and I can tell you that we're aiming pretty high, really high. So competitive is every club's going to say that at this time of the year that you know we're we're very ambitious. We want to be at the pointy end, come the end of the season. That that is brilliant. So going on to something we do know, obviously the new jerseys have just been released and they look absolutely fantastic in my opinion. I know the two here also agree with that. What was the thought process behind the design of the jerseys? Okay, so we ran a we ran the uh, consultation with fans for the colours. So we came up with um, green and black. So we then, again, you know, you talk about all the work that's gone into setting the club up. Because of the short lead-in time, you have to find an apparel partner that can actually deliver in a short amount of time. Uh, we, we were delighted to uh, do a deal with Kappa Australia. And so we've spent, you know, they're actually just down the road from my office here in Collingwood. If I tell you how many times I'm, I'm, I'm in their office, finalising things like getting the colour right and you know, and then looking at designs. And so they had a big input into uh, showing us different templates. We tested it within our own organisation and we ended up with the home strip that w- what we believe with the home strip is that it's a pure, it's a proper football strip. That's a probably best way of describing it. It's what, it's what you could run, you could run out with that strip in any league in the world and people would look at you and go, wow, that's pretty cool. Um, you know, were green and black the colours I grew up with? I probably would never have picked green and black. Uh, but now that it's now that it is what it is, I've got to be honest with you. I actually love it. It's unique in Australia. There's no other club anywhere near it in any sport. Um, I think, from a pure football fan, Kappa is a, a brand that is associated with football globally. I think the design that we've all had a, an input between Kappa and uh, my fellow directors. I think it's. I think it will represent us with you know. It'll make it'll make people proud. The away strip, it's out there. It's left field, and we make no apologies for that. We, um, funnily enough, someone from the FFA said to us very early on in the piece. Hey guys, have a bit of fun with your away strip. Do something a bit crazy because most of the A-League clubs have got pretty standard white away kits, and so that's exactly what we've done. So we 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 did a bit of research. We looked at you know some of the success stories, and you know there's no point in hiding it. The Nigerian uh, shirt at the World Cup in Russia was extremely popular. Uh, so that's inspired us to come up with something. Uh, left field uh, again the guys at Kappa there's a there's a guy there a, a designer who's based here and he's uh, he's come up with some incredible stuff and in a way you sort of wish you had four or five shirts because uh, there, there are some great designs out there one of the things that we didn't want to do is be wed to 
we, we, look, we're not we're not a vertical striped shirt for perpetuity. What you see today is the strip today. In two years' time, it could be a sash, it could be hoops, it could be quadrants. What 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 won't change is the green and the black is our colours. Um, we'll let the fans have a big a big role in 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 things like that because ultimately they're the ones that are going to wear it to the stadium. They have to be proud of it. A lot of people from interstate have bagged the away strip, but a lot of people locally love it. So it'll be interesting to see when we go on sale uh, how well we go. Um, but I'm actually, I don't know if I could wear one, but I, I, <laughs> I know that uh, a lot of younger guys will. So I think it's going to be make an amazing away day because just mm. seeing a flood of people we were talking before about, I think I can't wait. Yeah. With the potential of signing Brazilian Pato, what can we expect from the next marquee signing? Oh, rumoured. Yeah. 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 yeah, no, I, well, I, okay, I can confirm that I, I actually, that was, uh, I was involved in that. And it was funny that uh, I spoke to his agent in Brazil and his, the agent didn't want him to sign in Brazil. He actually wanted him to take to field offers like ours and others. I'm not saying he, was, he would have come to us uh, categorically, but uh, his agent said, oh, Alexander's fallen in love with this Brazilian beauty and that's it, he won't hear of anything else. And so, well, you can't compete with, with women uh, and love, yeah. We, um, with big name players, there's no question that we want the right one. Fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you uh, want to look at this, we have a head coach in Mark Rudin who doesn't care about reputation, who doesn't care about how big your name is. He has to interview every single player. And if they don't meet his um, attitude approach, meaning he's got to convince himself that the players are coming to us for the right reasons, and if he doesn't feel that He's guaranteed of that. He puts a line through them. And if, if I, again, if you were a fly in the wall and some of the discussions that we've had, you wouldn't believe some of the names that we've uh, spoken to. So we've got a head coach that is adamant that he's not going to just bring a player because he's got a name. He's got to be a player that comes here and does the business on the park. He makes some really valid points and I've lived through it myself with some players that you bring here. And that is, is that, most of the players in Europe play 60 games of the year. They come here and you're playing 26, 27. This year I think it's 26 plus playoffs. We're not in the FFA Cup. Now you might think that playing less games is going to prolong a player's career because their body's not working as hard. Yes and no. A body is like a car engine. If it's used to be driven by a driver in a particular way, and then someone else starts to drive it. So so purely and simply leaving Europe to come here, where players are used to playing 60 games and we're playing less than 30, that that is an issue for Mark. The hard grounds are an issue for some players. The heat is an issue for some players. The uh, And then you start talking about distance from their families, 
from their friends. And the big one is money. Whether whether we like it or not, even though a mar- marquee player is outside the salary cap, the fact of the matter is, A-League clubs today, you just can't write out a cheque for $10 million and, and because you can get a particular player. That alone isn't going to you know, pay its way. So there's no guaranteed return there's no on guaranteed it. return. So it's about getting the balance right. What we hope to find, I mean, we've, we're very fortunate that in um, the players that we've signed to date, the, the two foreigners that we've signed to date, Kurto, as a goalkeeper, gives us a lot of assurity. So we're really wrapped. I mean, normally clubs don't use a visa spot for a goalkeeper. And it was a decision that we had to make really early on because of the availability of other goalkeepers that, that weren't going to be goalkeepers around. So he was having a blinder of a season. So I went for him even before we'd signed Mark. Right? <laughs> so So we had to secure him because quite simply it's a finite resource really wrapped about signing uh panayotis kone the greek international um if fans want to know what to call him just call him panna because uh, that's what he was called for most of his career in uh, italy Panna's a great guy he's really educated he speaks you know three or four languages he's a class human being but He's also a really proud person. He knows that there's a massive uh, expectation on him when he gets here. So he's he's frothing at the mouth to, to show fans here what he can deliver. If we can find the other three foreigners that are of the same ilk as Kurto and Kone, I think we'll be in a really good spot. As far as a big name is concerned, we are talking to a number of them and we've spoken to a number of them some come onto the radar and some drop off real quick Pato and others okay we do want a big name if he's the right player so so we're uh, middle of june late june now we'd like to have at least two of the three remaining foreigners in place by the 15th of July when we start the official training. So there's a bit of work on the go at the moment. Wow. Um, in an interview with DFS in 2017, you spoke about the Carlton Football Club and how the branding alienated um, people being fans in outside areas of Carlton. Is that something you took on board with the Western United? 100%. So, so, so the Carlton Soccer Club, because it was born out of the Carlton Football Club, we probably... I, I call it a mistake. That's probably being a bit harsh because at the end of the day, it was the Carlton Football Club that owned it. It was Princess Park. Their uniform's navy blue. Maybe I went along with that because I'm a Carlton fan. Perhaps what I should have been is more businesslike and put up an argument to the Carlton Football Club that, hey, guys, if we want the soccer club to stand on its own two feet, we should open our doors to all fans of football, whether they barrack for Carlton or Collingwood. And if you call yourself Carlton, you immediately alienate 11 twelfths of the city. So if you're a Collingwood fan, why are you going to go and support Carlton? If you're a Geelong fan, why are you going to go and support Carlton? So when we set about 
the naming of our club, many heated discussions, numerous consultants, public surveys. In the end, there were a couple of factors that I suppose brought us to where we are today. People on 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 the other side of the the, the bridge, so people in the west don't see themselves necessarily as Melburnians. Now, I'm looking at you three, and you come from the West, so um, if you're going to shoot me down, you've got every opportunity to. But what we came to understand, and I've got family that live in the West, and, and every time I go and visit them, I always sort of wind them up, you know, like, do I need a, <laughs> do I need a passport to come on this side of town? And But it, should, it dawned on me, it, even though I've been going out there for 30 years, my wife's from the West, and I've been going out there for more than 30 years, in doing this exercise for the club, the feedback we were getting from people out in the West is that, look, Lou, you know, we don't we don't go into the city on a Friday night or the Saturday or a Saturday night. We go local. So we'll go to a pub, we'll we'll go to a club down here. People don't trudge all the way into town for something to do. There's plenty to do out in the West. So we started getting this constant thread of feedback that the West see themselves as the West and not West Melbourne. Hence why we didn't put the word Melbourne into our name. The FFA wanted us to have Melbourne in our name. We listened to what the market told us. The market told us, we're the West, we're not Melbourne, we're the West. So, so it's simplistic, but in the end, we've gone with a name that we think represents what we're about, and that is uniting the West. Now, that's not to say that the West isn't united. What we're saying is we want the West to unite behind us as their A-League team. Okay, there are many nationalities out there that have all their own, you know, you've got your, your Geelong Cat fans, you've got your Western Bulldogs, but if you take those two elite football teams, there isn't a lot of other elite things in sport happening out there. And so, so we want the guys that play for their local soccer club to continue to play for their local soccer club and support them, but th we want them to get behind us as well. Uh, we've we made a real point of working in closely with the 90-odd soccer clubs that are on that the, the western side, and some of those have been really excited that we've reached out to them and have been really supportive. You know, clubs like... Altona, Hoppers Crossing, uh, Calder United, for instance, have been absolutely fantastic. Um, you know, we're a football club that's starting off in the A-League as a men's team, but let me tell you, the, as soon as we can get the licence to start a W <clears throat> team, we will be. So we want to represent the West in all facets of football, men's, women's, youth and kids. So that's, that's in, in simple terms, it's as easy as that's the reason why we've come up with what we've got. Beautiful. I love it. I love the name. I'm quite glad that there's no Melbourne in there, to be honest. Yeah, it's 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 helped me identify with it. Like, that's, yeah, love it. Yeah. When we mention branding, we think sponsors, merchandise and stadiums. Is there any sneaky update we can get on these? Okay. Okay, so we've... Only yesterday secured a front of shirt sponsor. 
We're not going to announce that for another couple of weeks. And the reason is we've got our shirts being made at the moment. It takes eight weeks for those shirts to arrive. So we will not have shirts ready for delivery until the 1st of August. But what Kappa Australia are doing is they're sublimating our sponsor onto the front of the shirt and they're sending across a dozen or so of those shirts in the first week of July with the sponsor on the front. And when we've got that in hand, we're going to have a major media announcement and players will be dressed in the shirt with the sponsor. We want to do it right. We could leak it today. We could tell. We could announce it tomorrow and it'll make some impact. But what we'd actually like to do is actually show the fans the shirt that they're going to be able to buy, the same shirt that the players are going to be wearing on the field. So... Uh, for the sake of another two weeks, guys, we're going to wait until first week of July, and I think you'll be proud of uh, of the shirt. That's amazing! Cannot wait to get my hands on it. Okay. And to to keep going with some of the other things uh, that you just mentioned, um, a lot of work, as I've already alluded to, is going on with the stadium. Uh, there are countless consultants, members of Wyndham City Council, Pro Build, the builder. Uh, Populous, the designer, Oricon, the engineers, and I could just rattle off 20 other consultants. I mean, we've had the land in Tarni. We've had um, uh, a whole raft of tests being done. So we've had land survey, so where they fly over with uh, drones to de determine, you know, is it flat, is it hilly, is it lumpy? That's really important because that that's got to do, you've got to know what you're building on so we've had geo test which is basically drilling core samples to find out is it rock is it clay is it sand is it limestone we've had um, disability consultants go out because of the slope and all the rest of it have to determine what the access is going to be like to the stadium for wheelchair access You've got, um, we've had uh, cultural uh, site tests done where, where, where members of the Indigenous Council go out and run tests to see if there's any uh, Indigenous Aboriginal uh, artefacts. There's a really famous little creek that runs through one corner of the site. Um, so, there's a, there's, so there's a heck of a lot of work that's going on today that all forms part of the planning process. Um, I think in the next two to three weeks, we're, we're going to be in a position to actually show the public the visuals of what the outside of the stadium is going to look like and the visuals of what the seating and the inside of the stadium is going to look like. And let me tell you, as a football fan, it excites me no end. And I can't wait to share that with our fans because I, I actually think that it's it, it's going to really excite them. Yeah, that's yeah, already excited. Another question: Everyone is asking when the fixture will be released. If you got yeah, any idea? Yeah, we do. Um, I think, according to the last update from 
FFA middle of July. Yep. So it's not far away, three weeks away. Oh, awesome. With the introduction of Western United, what do you think our big derby will be? Like a, a, a battle of the Wests West, West versus Western Sydney or will be like a VARC or a City? or? No, I, I look, I think at the end of the day, let's face it, um, Melbourne Victory is the big boy in town. There's no question about that. And they've got a massive supporter base. They are the, they're the kings of, of football in this city. There's no question about that. Uh, we're the new kid on the block. So they'll probably want to smack us back into, uh, uh, you know, into submission. Um, I, 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 I sound like a traitor here, but I, I love Victory. I think that, as I said earlier on, they are the club that the A-League is very much built on. I'm really proud that I'm close to a lot of the owners and uh, key people at Victory. So I'm... Looking forward to the ribbing and uh, the rivalry. Um, we're not going to copy victory. You know, as actually a good friend of mine, Jim at Melbourne Victory, said to me, he goes, Luke, do your own thing. Don't copy us. Do your own thing. And he wasn't being uh, spiteful in saying that. I actually think what he was, was saying was giving us really genuine advice. We're not a CBD club. We're from the West. So we're not going to copy what the victory do. We'll do our own thing, and I'm really looking forward to that. I th and I think, from what I'm learning really quickly from the people out the west, is is that let's just do what the fans want, not what copy someone else. So victory will definitely be a uh, uh, a major rival. I think for the obvious reasons, I think there's going to be a little bit of uh, sparks fly when we play Wellington Phoenix. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, that's. And I reckon it's fantastic that, you know, let them hate this. Let them hate us, I should say. Um, you know, they feel that we've stolen. That's football. It happens yeah. all around the world. Yep. So, you know, whoopee-doo. I mean, uh, <laughs> uh, Sydney FC, you know, Costa Barbarossa's moving to Sydney FC. Well, you know, that's, that's really ruffled a lot of feathers. So that's football. So apart from that, I think, I think there's – I've got some really strong friendships with – with people at other clubs, like, you know, one of my best mates is the CEO at Perth Glory. So, and I know Tony Popovich pretty well and Tony Popovich and Mark Rudin are, are, are good friends as well. So I think there will be a bit of healthy rivalry there. Uh, there are others, you know, I, I think uh, Western Sydney Wanderers for the, oh, by the way, I've been up to their new stadium and wow, if I was a Western Sydney fan, I'd be frothing at the mouth to, uh, to get into that stadium once their season starts. So I think they'll always um, uh, be a rival just because they're, they're, they're big and they're loud. And that's really, you know, and then things happen over the course of your history um, and, you know, a rivalry will, will develop. But, but I think the obvious one is victory um, and, you know, and Wellington and the rest come and get us what can I say <laughs> I like the idea of a Wellington rivalry yeah that's yeah. good it's something unique in the Straight league it's trip yeah. um, now this may be more of a longer term strategy but is the club looking at maybe bringing any teams in the future to possibly play Western United oh 100% so, so again in my outside of Western United uh, business interests um, we're actually very very close to having a third game with Leeds this year I've, I'm bringing Leeds to Perth and to Sydney and we were going to get them down to play a third game against us. But because it would have meant that training would have had to, had to have already started, 
and it's just not we're not going to be ready for it so rather than do something half right park it um, but the answer is I would envisage an international game every season that's excellent. That would be wonderful. Can I complain? If yeah. uh, Rangers came, I'd be pretty happy. I'd be stoked with Rangers. <laughs> oh, I'm a Celtic man. Oh, there you <laughs> <go>. <laughs> um, so following on, you spoke a bit about how you're in your role at Tribal Sports Group as well. Um, is there anything, do you need to keep those roles separate at all? Do the, is there a conflict yeah, at yeah, all? Yeah. The, the, well, there, there's always a perceived conflict in everything that you do in life. So um, because of my player agent's license, uh, when we started the club, I actually suspended my, I wrote to David Gallup and the FFA and I've suspended my player agency license within Australia. So that way, um, any perceived con uh, conflict is removed. Um, so what are the key learnings or messages you have learned along the way when establishing a club or looking for the right players to bring? Now, I know you've already sort of alluded to this, but could you just go a bit more into it if possible? I think, I think, I'll go back to say, our latest recruit, Andrew Durante. Um, one of the reasons that Mark wanted uh, uh, Andrew involved at our club is is that he's had him as a player for 12 months, keeping in mind that I've known Andrew Durante um, for a long, long time. And I've actually spoken to Andrew about coming to us anyway, even before Mark did. But, but in once Mark was appointed... And we spoke about other players to bring to the club. He really wanted someone that could help him set the culture in the dressing room. I did my research with others about Andrew Durante. For instance, Tony Pinata, who's the CEO of Perth Glory, was CEO of Wellington Phoenix a few years back. And in fact, was invited to Andrew Durante's testimonial a couple of months ago in Wellington. And if you hear people that know Andrew Durante talk about him... Um, as to the character that he is, it sort of quickly helped me make up my mind that we should bring him to our club. So imagine this, we're a new club, 23 individuals rock up. Now, some of those players will know each other from past experiences, but basically it's a new club, 23 blokes in a dressing room, going to have a lot, of, a lot of young boys. You know, pe people don't realise how many young players we've actually signed. And you need someone, the head coach does work out in the park, but he doesn't share the same dressing room with them. So if you look at, say, the role of an experienced person in a dressing room, again, sorry to go back to Melbourne Victory, but Kevin Musket, as a player, set the culture of that club 14 years down the track where he's now just finished as head coach. He set the player, from, he set the player culture from day one. There are many famous stories of players with big heads walking into the dressing room where Kevin quickly sorted them out. Was and it with the studs out? <laughs> <laughs> so I couldn't help myself. I'm sorry. There, yeah, there's, there's, there's a, couple of, there's a couple of beauties, but I don't think Andrew's a similar character, well, much different character to, to Kevin, but, but, but Andrew's a no-nonsense sort of a person and he will help. He'll be the coach inside the dressing room. Now, if Andrew Durante plays one game this season, it doesn't really matter. If he plays 20 games, then obviously someone else that we've recruited is injured or Andrew's in better form. So no one is 
starting 11. It, it, they all have to earn their place. But with Andrew, there's no question at all, because we're a new club, bring him in, help set the culture, and next year, if he hangs up his boots, we'll keep him at the club in some role, whether it's team liaison, like Terry McFlynn did at uh, Sydney FC. Um, so as a new club, we're looking for the good quality people on and off the park, support staff as much as players. Players that... Uh, there was a, an interesting um, example where the day that Mark Rudin was announced, one of the young boys, without mentioning names, had walked in with an earring. And Mark just ripped, literally ripped the earring out of his ear. You know, he, Mark has certain guidelines, certain expectations of what players will bring to the club. I recruited Mark to Sydney FC 15 years ago, so I know Mark reasonably well. He's a very, very no-nonsense, serious person when it comes to football. Football is life to him, and he expects the players, when they're working, to abide by certain characteristics, certain expectations. He wants to set the culture for the club from day one that will continue on in, in three years and in 13 years' time. So what you don't want is a club to change tack. You know, you set a strong culture and you build on that culture. Because we're a new club, we don't have history, you know, so we have to create our own history. So if you've got 13 people, uh, 13, if you've got 23 people in the dressing room all pulling in the same direction, you've, you're halfway there. I mean, I'm sure that people that follow sport uh, and football around the world and locally the teams that are usually happy in the dressing room are the teams that carry that form onto the park. If you've got cancer in the dressing room, if you've got troublemakers in the de dressing room, uh, you won't get the best out of the squad, out of the team. So, so these are the characteristics. And, you know, we look at, apart from uh, Andrew Durante, I've mentioned him a few times, but, you know, we've got, Urson Goulam. I mean, what, 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 a, what, a, what an amazing man Urson is. You know, a boy that grew up in Australia, was overlooked for, by our national selectors, played for one of the biggest clubs in Turkey, played seven games for the Turkish national team. Um, tough, uncompromising character on the park, an absolute gentleman off the park. He... Um, He's a really serious dude. Like he really football. He loves his football. So he's he's not here for a holiday. Uh, and you know, if you go through most of the players, I would say they all have very similar characteristics in that regard. They're different as humans, but I think they've all they've, the young boys are are excited to be in the dressing room with some some wise and experienced players. The experienced players are looking. Um, to, to really achieve something in our inaugural year. There's, there's a commonality, that, I suppose there's a, we're all there for the same purpose. Build something new and be successful and have fun along the way. And hopefully that permeates right across our fan base, our sponsors and everyone else uh, associated with the club. Um, when will the players' numbers be revealed? Is there a chance we can get 
bit of info on that? No. No. <laughs> no. What I can tell you, what I can tell you is Steve Horvat is the football director myself and uh, Mark had a discussion. And one thing that we made very clear very early on in the piece, the numbers will the numbers will be from one to 23. So there'll be none of this 88. Uh, I love you, Neil Kilkenny at Perth, but I hate that number. Um, and other crazy numbers. No, it'll be one to 23. If I had my way, now I'm really showing my age, I'd go back to the to the one to 11. You know, that, <laughs> no, so that won't happen. But so it'll be one to 23. So I think I think the only one that you can take to the bank now is Philip Curto, number, number one. one. Yeah. Yeah. As for the others, I think it's going to be one hell of a fight. <laughs> First day of trading, everyone's got black eyes. <laughs> well, 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 Mark, Mark's going to play a big, big uh, uh, role in in selection of the numbers. I think I think what he will do is he will respect the senior players and and give them first uh, dibs. But but uh, look, at the end of the day, it is what it is. We it's one to twenty three. Yeah. We might do a raffle and just put <laughs> <laughs> yeah, put it exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good idea, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, do you have any idea on when memberships will be available? Middle of July. Middle of July. 100%. Yeah, we purposely waiting for the fixtures because you, you need to know the fixtures before playing, yeah. you can actually say to the fans, well, what are you buying? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, so middle of July, is there's going to be a hive of activity in that regards. Thanks for clarifying that because we get asked that a lot. And prior to today, we've only just spoke occasionally. So I was like, how would I know when the memberships are coming? So it's great to get the, the mm. full picture on that. Um, is there anything else you would like to say to the listeners and the fans? I, I think it's like before we started taping this, this discussion that we, us three, uh, us four had earlier on. And that is, is that we're a new club. Um, we're trying to minimize mistakes. Want to be all embracing we do really want a united front as a club. So we want the fans of the West. And I, 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 look, I think there will be fans that will come from other parts of Melbourne as well over the, over the bridge. You know, that there are friends of mine who, and friends of players whose families live on, in other parts that are really fascinated with what, with what we're doing. Uh, that wasn't the intention. We, one of the things that um, we never wanted to cannibalise, it's no point in us taking a thousand people from Melbourne Victory, because then we're, where's the net effect for the A-League? What we want to do is is we want to encourage the guys out, the guys and girls out in the West that don't venture across to watch an A-League game that'll get out of their homes to come and watch us. And so we want, we really do want people in the West to, to take this club as their own. Um, talk to us, tell us what, you know, what we can do to make it easy, um, we encourage feedback. I think we've tried to listen and I think we've implemented as much as we possibly can within reason. But at the end of the day, uh, the club is about the fans. I mean, it doesn't matter who owns the club. The ownership is really irrelevant. Chelsea fans don't care that Roman owns it or Ken Bates. It didn't make any difference. It only makes a difference if, if the team is successful. So, you know... There's no question. What I want to say to the fans is, is, is that we we certainly are not working to a five-year plan when it comes to the team. We're not here saying that in five years' time we'll be ready to win a um, a trophy. No, let me tell you categorically, it's from day one that we want to be super competitive, um, and really it's just just 
I hope people enjoy it. That's the main thing. If if you enjoy something, then you, you do it and you do it wholeheartedly. If you're not enjoying it, well, you know, people won't come. So we want, you know, we want the fans to come along and have a good time. I think that's a really good message to pass on about us all having a good time because that's really what it's all about as all of us here as fans. Um, on behalf of all of us here at All Out West, I just really want to say a big thank you for your time today. You've really given us some good in-depth answers that we can provide to the fan base. So thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Don't forget to check us out on social media, on Facebook at All Out West Podcast, on Instagram at All Out West Podcast, on Twitter at West Podcast. Check out the Western Service crew on Facebook and these rad Instagram pages at WooFCArmy, at Western underscore United underscore our underscore way, at Western underscore United underscore fan page, at WooFC Match Days, at We Are WooFC. Let us know if we left you out. Long live the Woo!